So let me ask you guys a question. What makes you, you? Right? What makes Mark, Mark and not Bob? And I want you to like really think about this for a second because this question has literally plagued philosophers and scientists for centuries. All the way back at Plato, this question remained unanswered. Now, if you're a Christian, you're probably going to give me the, the good theological answer. I am who I am in Christ. I am a new creature because of God's work. And that's true. It's not necessarily what I'm asking. On a purely physical level, what could you say about yourself? Maybe explain it to a secular person, scientist, philosopher, guy off the street. How could you explain to him that you are a unique individual distinct from everybody else in this room? So we're going to approach this question uh, kind of negatively, looking at some things that doesn't answer the question to get a better understanding of what exactly we're getting at here. So the obvious first answer is DNA, right? Everybody's unique individual genetic code. And the problem is, is that this answer does not apply to everybody, right? Not everybody has the same DNA. Twins, two people from the same fertilized egg split up two different personalities, two different worldviews, two totally distinct individuals, same genetic code. And I found out that Interestingly enough, it's extremely unlikely, but possible, that two unrelated people can have the same genetic code. So DNA is not good enough to answer this question. What about atoms? The very building blocks, the things that you are made of. Uh, I am obviously made up of a different set of atoms than you are, therefore we're different people. Um, hold on to that thought for just a second. I'm going to give you a really quick illustration because it's it's really going to change the way that you look at this question. Uh, if I have, say, an axe, all right, I decide for whatever reason I don't like the axe head, take the axe head off, grab a different axe head, pop it on there. Some time goes by, five seconds, five years, doesn't matter. I decide I'm going to replace the handle. Right? Take the handle off, grab a new handle, pop that on there. Is this the same axe that I had just a second ago? No, right? We can all pretty much agree on that. All right. So with that in mind... I went uh, online, did a lot of research into this, this question, and in the 1930s, a biophysicist named Paul Abersold did this really interesting study. He would literally inject these atoms with a, a radioactive substance and put them in a body, and he'd trace the atom to see how long it took for that atom to then leave the body. And you think, you're constantly ingesting food, particles, air, all these things. Atoms are constantly being introduced, and they're constantly being expelled, clipping your hair, your nails, molecules are... Uh, being regenerated, dying, leaving. You're, you're constantly in this state of flux. He found that every year, 98% of the atoms in your body have been replaced. Let that sink in. Like You are very much like that axe that I held a second ago. And in fact, he postulated that every five years, that remaining 2%, the bone, brains, things that take a really long time, even they are replaced. Some debate about five years, seven years, whatever. The point is, is that every so often, a lot sooner than we think, the physical stuff you're made of has been totally replaced. So now, back to the question, what makes you, you? And this question is a little bit more complicated now because I don't even know what me is anymore. It's this state of atoms going in and coming out and you know, what is life all of a sudden. So after going over this and going over and going over, I found a really interesting possible solution. It's by far the best one I've heard. If you have a better one, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Uh, maybe after the second service, so I don't have to change my slides. But <laughs> memory. I think memory is possibly the best answer, physically speaking, to explain who you are as a person. I mean, again, apart from God, on a physical level, I think memory 
is essentially what defines you. And let me explain. If you've never heard this, this probably is going to sound really bizarre and you think I'm crazy, but think about this. You are defined by your personality, largely. Your personality, your worldview, your way of thinking, all this is pretty much made up of an entire life experience, right? Your trials, your errors, uh, all these things that you collect, you constantly redefine and you revise your way of thinking. Your memory holds all of that. If you were to wake up one morning completely void of all the memories you've ever had, maybe through some crazy science experiment, was given an entirely new set of (coughs) memories, everything about you would be different. Totally different person, totally different way of thinking, of believing, of remembering. Everything about you would be different. If I were to wake up tomorrow morning and all of my memories were replaced with somebody else's, no matter how hard you convinced me, I would not believe that I was married to Julissa, that I had a son, that I've been going to this church. Everything that I understood about the world would be different, be a different person for all intents and purposes, even if my body was still physically the same, because your body isn't necessarily what defines you. So, very interesting concept. We're going to maybe keep this in the back of our heads as we go through Scripture. We are not going to uh, interpret Scripture through this lens. All right, We're not specifically going to take this idea and then redefine Scripture based on it. It's just going to give us another layer of understanding. It may be a different way to apply what we're reading in Scripture. Because this idea of remember, of remember God, remember who he is, and this idea of forgetting, it's over and over and over and over in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at some passages where these ideas are really, really prevalent. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 31. We're going to spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy in the first half here. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a really, a really quick overview of where we are in Israel's history. Israel has been delivered from Egypt, right? The bondage of Egypt. Been there for a long time. Generation after generation, God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea, out of Egypt, goes to Mount Sinai. God has an amazing display of who he is awesome power of his display, gives the people his law, reveals himself to his people, and he literally leads them day by day through the wilderness uh, towards the promised land, this ultimate end goal that they're heading to, this inheritance that they have to look forward to. Deuteronomy takes place immediately before they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. There is, there is literally no other obstacles in the way at the end of Deuteronomy except for the Jordan River and then Jericho and then city after city as they come into the promised land. Moses is about to die. God tells Moses, you are not going into the promised land yourself, you're going to die. And Deuteronomy is a collection of uh, three sermons or speeches. Okay? This is Moses' last chance to tell the people something that they can hold on to that they will need to know as they go into the promised land. See, Moses, his probably biggest role in leading the people is to constantly act as a mediator between God and them. They're constantly messing up, and he's constantly acting as a witness against them, saying, this is why this is happening, this is what you're doing, this is what you need to do. He's not going to be able to do that anymore. Think of how seriously he's taking everything he says here, how how carefully he's weighing this, and how carefully would you weigh your own words if you knew they were your last words, especially to your children who have been totally dependent on you for guidance. Very, very important book. So Deuteronomy 31, this is verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent of 
at the tent in a pillar of a cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them, and in that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Really bad news. This is not something that's going to comfort Moses in his last days. But it really illustrates a problem. It highlights a very big issue. This is why Moses needs to listen to God carefully and pass on these last words to the people. He's not going to be there to act as a witness. God knows they're going to screw up, and God is, hard as it is, give them over into their sin in order to drive them to a point where they have to turn to him and repent. God is not going to forsake them, but it's going to feel like that because these people are just going to be unrestrained, indulging in idolatry, and they're going to get to the point where they need to turn to God because they have no other choice. So what is... The solution. Moses is not here to convict. He's not here to witness against. Moses is dead. He can't necessarily trust this to anybody. And the fact is, is Moses' sermons, these sermons up here, really great stuff. Great to get those principles, to get those ideas, to get these truths that stick with you. That's not good enough to convict somebody. When I talk about convict, it needs to be almost in the legal setting. You need multiple witnesses to agree on their testimony perfectly. Word for word, they have to agree on all the points. You can't have two people that have the same general idea or the same concept of truth and these nice life lessons that they can agree upon and then use that to convict somebody. That's not good enough to act as a witness. And that's what Moses needs right here. That's what the people need in the future when they're in the promised land. So God has this brilliant solution. Uh, The next passage, just uh, verses 19 to 23 in the same chapter. Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that they may so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land which I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do, even before I bring uh, bring them into the land that I promised on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. It's brilliant. Literally every single person in the nation... Did I not skip the slide? No, maybe I did. Don't mind me. Every single person in the nation is going to have this song memorized verbatim. Everybody. Everybody is going to act, in essence, as their own witness against each other. When they get messed up in sin and idolatry, this song is going to be ringing through everybody's ears in the same way. It is a perfect witness, the perfect testimony, word for word across an entire nation. And that's the difference between having a truth or a principle instilled from you in a sermon and having something word for word. I mean, how many of you guys here, honestly, can remember word for word 10 minutes of any sermon you've ever heard? Word perfect, right? Nobody. How many of you guys can remember maybe 10 minutes worth of your favorite songs, word for word? Like, 
Everybody here, everybody's got a favorite song. You probably nine, 20, 30, 100, thousands of songs. Literally, your mind is capable of knowing word for word. That's just how our brain works. Now, I'm not saying we need to take this idea of memory that I illustrated earlier and, and use it to interpret scripture. I just think it's interesting that God just comes out with a solution that just works so naturally with how we are disposed to work. So that is the solution of the song. Now, we're just going to summarize the beginning part of the song. We're not going to look at the whole thing because the song is literally the entire chapter uh, 32 of Deuteronomy. It's a long song. It probably took them 10 minutes just to get through the whole thing. But as all good songs start, it starts with God. And this is very important to realize the progression of the song. It starts out with who God is. And we're just going to skim down through it. It describes God as great and perfect. He is just. He is called the rock. And he is called the creator. Huge terms that paint this really broad, awesome picture of who God is. And then immediately moves into what God has done. You see that God has formed and adopted the people in these first 12 verses. He gave them an inheritance, specifically in the form of a land. He guards and protects them out of Egypt through the Red Sea every day thereafter. And then he sustains them in the wilderness. Their, their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years, for goodness sake. Like, it is incredible. And then he blesses them with an abundance. They literally carried out the wealth of Egypt with them. And they were supplied for. And now they're just coming into a land that wasn't their own. God is blessing them abundantly. Now look at the response. This is where we're going to start picking apart a little bit more, this idea of remembering, forgetting who God is, what the people are responding with. We're going to read verses 15 to 18. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God, gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. That first word there is translated as upright one. It's literally what it means. Upright, righteous, or holy one. And in this passage, it's used sarcastically. It's used to illustrate how far they fell. Have you ever wondered that, how the Israelites could go from worshiping God and then literally a short time later, start worshiping idols, like things that they literally just carved with their hands and start calling that God and said how bizarre and how stupid it seems. This is to illustrate how far they fell. The upright one, by the end of the passage here, forgets and forsakes God completely. And I think it's interesting that you can see a progression here. They grew fat and kicked. By this point, this is like a prophecy. They're in the land. Things are going well. They grew fat. They kicked. They get independent. And that independence eventually leads them to forget God. Not in a physical sort of, you know, I don't remember who Jehovah is, but an intentional act of not keeping God at the center of their focus. This intentional sort of forsaking of God within your mind. You know, thinking about God, God gets what's on the back burner, eventually the back burner gets turned off, eventually it's gone. You're not thinking about it whatsoever. That's the kind of forgetting that's being talked about here. And that forgetting ultimately leads to just forsaking. If God's not in the picture, there's so much room for idols, anything to take its place. So we're actually going to go ahead into the book of Judges really quick, because this is a prophecy. This is kind of like a vague sort of, this is what's going to happen. It doesn't exactly say how it happens. 
So go ahead, turn over to Judges. We're going to skip Joshua. Basically, the book of Joshua is the people going in, claiming the land that God gave them as an inheritance. They had to command, purge the land of sin. No influence of sinfulness or ungodliness or unrighteousness is to be left amongst you. It is a pure and holy land. You are a pure and holy people. I am a pure and holy God. That is the way you're meant to live. You get to Judges. They own the land, right? It is their land by this point in time. And I'm just going to really quickly summarize Judges uh, 1, 27 to 36. Israel is strong. They've conquered the land. All these pagan nations surrounding them, they're not only left to be there surrounding them, they actually are made into slaves, a nation of slave labor. Um, That's where we're going to get to. And that happens because tribe after tribe after tribe makes this grievous mistake of allowing these nations to stay amidst their borders, to literally be their personal servants, to be their uh, a nation of water carriers, wood choppers, doing Israel's menial work. Not only is that evil pagan pre- uh, presence there, it's in their homes, it's in their communities. And that was a huge mistake. They are super comfy. Like They were in Egypt as slaves, now they are the one who have made nations into slaves. And this is what happens in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and on. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, and this is the generation that just conquered the land, the one that that song originally learned by, this next generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashereths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was not with them. And just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Let's see that, that quick transition there. They forgot God. That's, that's all that's really mentioned there is the new generation came up. They knew the song. We know they knew the song because they were told specifically generation after generation would know this song. So they didn't physically forget who God was or what he had done. They simply stopped caring. They simply stopped dwelling on that. It was no longer a priority. See, remembering in Scripture almost all the time, especially in the Old Testament, is an act of intentionally keeping something at the forefront of your mind, of your focus. You choose to remember something where you choose to not think about it. That is what's really being talked about when it says remembering or forgetting. When it talks about God remembering or forgetting, God does not suddenly wake up one morning and forget a fact. He doesn't suddenly remember a fact. He makes it a priority in his being to do something, to act upon something. That is true remembrance in a biblical point of view, to intentionally, consciously choose to remember and do something. Now, this generation doesn't remember God, and that, gen- or that forgetting ultimately leads them to forsake God entirely. They literally went from worshiping God to worshiping Baal. In one generation, that's all it took. Moses literally giving his last words to one generation. The very next one starts worshiping Baal. That is incredible. And we kind of sit back and we're just appalled by it. That's disgusting. That's that's horrible. We would never do something so foolish as that. And then I mull over these points in my sermon for the past months. I've had this general idea of remembering. And I realize as soon as things get 
comfy for me as soon as like these hospital bills from having my son were just like looming over and I was constantly going to God in prayer and I was wondering, here's the bill and here's everything else. I don't see how this is going to work together. As soon as God fixes that problem, and, and thank goodness he did, it, why do I need to go to God so much anymore? I'm not driven to my knees in prayer. I'm not driven to the scripture to find comfort anymore. Things are okay. They're comfortable, right? That's exactly how it starts. Things get comfortable, they get independent. I start thinking about my life and how things are going, how I'm in control. Just God gets pushed off to the side. Eventually he's forgotten. Eventually he's forsaken. It's a very dangerous place to be in. And I'm not trying to beat everybody over the head with this passage in Deuteronomy saying, you know, you need to focus on God every single moment of your life, even when things are fine. That's true. But we need to focus on God in a way that glorifies him. See, we have something better than the song of Moses. Right? These people had Deuteronomy 32 to memorize, and that was good. We have something far greater. We have this literal, spiritual salvation from Egypt. We have this deliverance from the bondage of sin. God literally took it upon himself to deliver us, put everything on the line, let himself die in our place so that we could have salvation. The, the gospel in a nutshell is that God paid the price for our mistake so that we didn't have to. We can instead accept this free gift and we have this amazing relationship with God that was broken and destroyed because of our own foolishness. That relationship can be restored. And that's the sort of thing we need to live in day in and day out, especially when things are comfortable. Because there's a very great danger in forgetting who we are in Christ. That forgetting ultimately leads to forsaking. Now, I imagine that spoke to like maybe... You know, maybe 20% of the people here who are having a pretty nice, comfortable life. Uh, a lot of people wonder, well, what if my life isn't spinning so smoothly in orbit? What if it's just spinning out of control? And that's where the second half of this sermon is going to go into. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 77. This is an amazing psalm and easily one of my favorite ones now. Because this is the flip side. This is asking the question, what do you do when things are not going so well, when things are not comfortable and relatively easy. And, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the answer is still going to be the same, this idea of remembering and forgetting and who we are in God. It just takes a slightly different form when things are painful. So we're going to read through the whole psalm, and we're just going to look at uh, bits and pieces. We're going to pick it apart. Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this will I appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. Your display 
Or you display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Very first two words there give a whole lot of context to this chapter. See, the words, I cried, specifically cried out, that English translation cried out has two different Hebrew words that can be translated in that same way, cried out. The one means sort of longing. The guy lost in the desert, he's longing, cries out for water, he's hungry, he's in this sort of desperation, a sort of uh, a groaning, if you will. Uh, That is not how it is meant to mean here. The second way, the second word that is translated as cried out literally means to shriek. This is somebody literally screaming out to God because of his desperation. And I think this is very telling and it's also very encouraging because if you notice that there is no specific reason given as to why he's literally crying out to God. And I love that about this psalm more than anything else because it, it could literally be anything. I have no idea what Asaph is crying out to God about. It could quite well be all these bills he's got piling up that he sees no way of getting out from under. Could have just been diagnosed with a terminal disease. He could have just lost his job. His family could have turned against him. It could have been anything. So every single person here should be able to identify with this in some way, shape, or form. How many of you guys have ever been in this place, you're literally losing sleep over whatever it is that's keeping you crying out to God. He's stretching out untiring hands. His eyes aren't closing. He's asking himself these questions. Did God forsake me? Is his mercy really everlasting? This is a very real and a very dark place, but one we all find ourselves in at one time or another. So as we go through this, I think it's absolutely inspiring how he goes through this transformation of complete grief and desperation, ultimately into worship by the end of the end of the psalm. See, verses 3 to 9, he's making these statements. I remembered you when I groaned. I meditated. We say, yeah, he's remembering, right? Why isn't it working? And the thing is, is he's not remembering in the way that he should be remembering. And I'm not criticizing him here. He's going through something horrific, I'm sure. But when we remember God, when we make that intentional choice to remember God, we need to remember God for who he is and what he's done, not as a convenient solution to our problems. We can't remember God as just that emotional or religious experience we've had. We need to remember God in a way that it is about God and glorifies God. And you can see that that sort of remembering changes when you get to verse 10. Go ahead and look at what he specifically remembers about God. If you go through, it's very poetic, but the the actual instances he's referring to is remembering who God is as shown by how he displays himself through his works, through his deeds in the lives of Israel. Starts out with the redemption from Egypt. He remembers how God literally saved his people, and there's an awesome parallel for us there. The greatest thing we have to remember God for is 
how he literally redeemed us, brought us out of this bondage of sin and into this incredible new life that we now have in Christ. He mentions the crossing of the Red Sea, the waters saw you, the waters saw you and writhed. Literally delivers them, delivers them through these impossible situations. And then God's awesome display at Mount Sinai, the thundering and the lightning and the rain pouring down, and God manifesting himself in a spectacular way to his people, revealing himself through the law and through his power. And then, probably the best part, literally the day after day, until the day they die, leading of God's people by God, like a shepherd, on and on and on and on. These are the things that Asaph turns to, and it shifts his focus. His, his remembering is entirely different now. See, that sort of remembrance, who God is, what he's done, it changes that sort of grief into worship. And I'm not saying these situations are easy. I'm not saying Asaph's situation it was instantly fixed after this, but his perspective was. His remembering was very much changed. And he was instantly welling up with a sort of hope and a faith. That is what this is all about. A genuine biblical remembrance automatically leads to faith. Forgetting in the biblical definition leads us in the opposite direction. So the despairing question of verse 9, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? That question is challenged by these remembrances, who God is and what he's done. It is an amazing thing. So God, not a convenient solution to our problems, not a remembrance of a, a religious or emotional experiences. This is remembrance of the majesty of God's person in the marvelous way that he works out his self in our lives, these awesome deeds, these things he's done for his own glory and our good. See, that's the kind of remembrance that I'm talking about. That's the sort of remembrance that we need to hold on to when things are comfortable, right? As the song said, when the world is all as it should be, and on the road marked with suffering. Same answer for both situations. Remember who God is and what he's done in a way that glorifies him. Now the question at this point really becomes um, how. It's nice to say remember God and what he's done, but practically speaking on a day-to-day basis, when you wake up tomorrow, how can you do this? And that's what we're going to get into next, just a little bit of application. And... Yeah, I, I apologize, some of these are a little on the craftsy, girly side. Sorry, gentlemen, but, you know, it's not as easy as uh, it was for the Israelites to build a big old pile of stones and use that to remember God, but we'll have a solution. Uh, first off, just go back to the Song of Moses. You don't have to turn there. Maybe review it, and seriously, go through and read the whole Song of Moses. It is incredible. Maybe even memorize it like the Israelites will. It's, it's a really cool chapter. But one of the things it specifically says is, go and ask older generations. So there's something very faith-inspiring about going to somebody else who's lived a bit longer than you, who maybe has a longer string of memories of God, who he is, and his faithfulness, and going to them and asking, how have you seen God work? How have you seen God reveal himself? What has he done in your life? And then to hear those things builds our faith. We can add that to our own idea and remembrance of who God is. That can bolster our own faith. The more we can look into the past and see, you know, God has brought me that far. He's brought me this far. He's brought me this far. Then we can begin to confidently say, he's going to bring me that far, and he's going to get me there and on and on. There is something very powerful in asking older generations about who God is and what he's done. A second thing we should be doing anyway, reading scripture and praying. Do it in such a way that you 
look for who God is and what he's done. Right? Don't go to the Bible and say, what can I get out of it? You know, How is God going to fix my life through reading scripture and praying? Look at scripture as a record of God manifesting himself to us. Look at scripture as God's record, his track record of what he's done in the lives of his people and what he's continuing to do. That's the sort of thing that really bolsters faith. And there is nothing else that we have in this entire world that is is incorruptible, unfailing, unerring, unquestionable as the scripture. It is the only thing we have of God today that we can hold and look at and say, this is the definite revelation and manifestation of God's will to us. Something we take for granted, I think, uh, a little bit too often, but it is well worth turning to just to get an idea of who God is and what he's done. And then to use that and say, yeah, God is going to get me the rest of the way because he's been doing it throughout all of history. And now here's the other one, Ebenezer's. And we're actually going to sing uh, Come Thou Fount, which mentions an Ebenezer in the hymn. And every single time we sing it, the pastor will always uh, do an introduction of why we're mentioning the name of an elderly miser who hates Christmas. <laughs> right? Because we don't use this word anymore. An Ebenezer in the Old Testament was literally a big old pile of stones, uncut stones. Right? You, you didn't have any influence necessarily of your own in the fashioning or the craftsmanship. People didn't look at that pile of stones and say, wow, the artist did a really good job. It was literally like a pile of boulders or rocks. And you'd set this up in places where God specifically did something that you wanted to remember. There was a big old Ebenezer set up at the Jordan River. When the people crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, set up this huge Ebenezer. That way, generations going forward, their kids, their kids, 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 would look at that and say, why is there a pile of stones there? That would give you an opportunity to both remember what God did and who he was and also pass that along. Ebenezers are an awesome thing in Scripture, and they pop up over and over. And every time you see them, you should take note because it marks something special God did. Now, we could do the same thing. Uh, I was really trying to rack my brain on how we could use Ebenezer's in our own life in, in maybe a more practical way than piling up stones. If you're a man, maybe piling up stones in the front yard would be the thing to do. Yeah, whatever works. Um, some other things, take photos. Like make, like make You don't have to scrapbook, but maybe pin up a photo on your fridge. I mean, I did that with um, my family, the picture taken right after my son was born because... For a while there, it was touch and go. We weren't sure if he was going to have to be rushed off to a, uh, an ICU unit, and my wife was doing really badly. We weren't sure if she was going to be able to pull through. And that reminds me that I cried out to God in that moment, and he was faithful. Things like that just remind us who God is and how he works in our lives. And it gives us the, the faith to return to God and say, I know you've been faithful to me. I can be faithful to you and keep going. You can keep a prayer journal, and I think the word journal turns off a lot of us, but if you read some of the prayer journals or diaries of some of the great reformers or missionaries, it is really incredible because they were really messed up sometimes. A lot of them were depressed at times. They were really struggling. But they were able to look back and say, God brought me this far. I know he's going to bring me the rest of the way. That is what Ebenezer's are all about. And for us to be able to look back on our own lives and say, I remember when I was really struggling back then and I wasn't sure how God was going to do it, but he did. And now that I'm struggling right here, I don't know how he's going to do it. I know that he will. That's what biblical remembrance 
really boils down to. It is this intentional thing that keeps God to the forefront of your mind. And anything that helps you do that can be an Ebenezer. So as I bring this to a close, just again, I'm going to impress over and over and over and over the importance of choosing what you remember, how vitally it is, how vitally important it is to make a conscious effort to keep something at the forefront of your mind, to not let it get to the point of forgetfulness and then forsaking it altogether. This is incredibly true when things are comfortable, when the sun is shining down on you, things are fine. Guard yourself against slipping into that forgetful state. Guard yourself against forsaking God by remembering who he is, what he's done in your life, specifically who you now are in Christ. That is the biggest thing anyone here could ever look towards. And if you don't have that in your life to look forward to, you can. It it is literally as easy as accepting the work that Christ has already accomplished for you and then to simply allow him to continue to transform your life day after day after day and start stringing those memories together of God's faithfulness. Ebenezer's remembering God, equally important when things are painful, especially like we looked at with Asaph. Turning that grief in those moments into worship, that is a powerful thing. That is a testimony. And when you get out of that situation, that situation itself becomes an Ebenezer, something you can look back on and say, God delivered me through that. And he's going to keep on delivering until the ultimate working out of his plan is realized in my life. Now, just one really quick note on Ebenezer's. Don't treat them as a get-out-of-jail-free uh, get card, okay? This is not, you know, God has delivered me through all these things. Then you take a flippant attitude and say, oh, in this situation, God's just going to work it out. And specifically, God's going to work it out in the way that I expect him to. That's not what Ebenezer's are about. This remembering of God is a remembering of God's faithfulness, who he is, who he has revealed himself to be, and then trusting not that he will work this out how you expect, just trusting God will work this out in the way that glorifies him. And if you build up that faith over the course of your life, that is the best possible answer that you could expect. Whatever way glorifies God the most out of the situation is exactly what I want, even if it's not the answer you are really wanting on a physical level. So with that, I'm just going to go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you so much that you are a great God. You are a faithful God. You are faithful in spite of our constant unfaithfulness to you. I just humbly ask that you remind us to remember who you are. Remind us what you've done for us. Remind us constantly of your work on the cross. As much as we, I think, take that for granted, help us to make that a priority in our thinking, in our living even. Help us to guard against this idea of forgetting who you are. Help us to guard against the, that easily 10-degree slippery slope of sliding into forgetfulness and forsaking you. I humbly ask that your work on the cross is a very real truth that we hold at the very pinnacle of our thinking all the time. When things are comfortable, when things are unimaginably painful. I just thank you that you are a great God who's demonstrated who you are in our lives. And I just humbly ask that we can trust you to work out your plan, and to ultimately glorify yourself in whatever situation we're going through. We ask all this in your name.